Welcome to this throwback edition of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, where we remember the past and choose to repeat it. Today's episode was originally published on February 15th, 2019, and I wanted to play it now because our most recent full episode is telling the story of the strikes among writers and actors in Hollywood. Those strikes are being put in the context of a wave of other strikes and unionization efforts. One article compiled a few, quote, On the ninth day of the Writers Guild of America strike, they don't know that the Screen Actors Guild, or SAG, will join them, or that 340,000 UPS workers and 30,000 Los Angeles Unified School District employees will vote to authorize the same, or that Sega of America will soon become the largest union shop in gaming, end quote. So, It's undoubtedly true that we are in a rising wave of unionization and strike efforts to push back against, frankly, the insufficiency of neoliberal economics for providing what people need to survive and thrive. So today's throwback episode is looking at essentially the same movement, but from the perspective of 2019 and through the lens of the L.A. teachers' strike— To save you time, I've removed a couple of clips that were focusing on charter schools that were in the original version of the episode. If you want our take on charter schools, we have a more recent one that you can check out. It's number 1554, Destroying Education and Democracy for Fun and Profit. But for today, just think about how the demands being made by teachers in 2019 continue to echo through other industries, because although the details are different, at the core we're all fighting for the same things. And be sure to hear the conclusion today with the late, great Michael Brooks giving his analysis, putting that teacher's strike into a broader context of a resurgent left in U.S. politics. Sources today include Now This, Belabored by Descent Magazine, The Dig from Jacobin, Past Present, Start Making Sense from The Nation, and The Michael Brooks Show. It is day three of a strike, and it doesn't matter how much rain is happening right now, because we are undeterred in our fight for justice and for everything our students need. This strike is a strike to save public education. This strike is a strike to make sure that the overwhelmingly black and brown children in lower income neighborhoods aren't presented with further inequity within education. This district is being ran by an investment banker who tries to make the rich schools richer and the poor schools more poor. So being that this strike is about saving public education and the educational opportunities for the most valuable youth in our community, this attack is not only aimed at teachers. This attack is an attack on students. It's an attack on parents. It's an attack on the entire community. Over 80% of the public supports this strike because they know... 
because they know, the public knows that it is unacceptable not to have full-time nurses. It is unacceptable to have class sizes of 47. It is unacceptable to have teachers come in and then leave because the conditions are too hard and the pay isn't enough. Uh, it is unacceptable to have charter schools pop up on every corner and drain money and resources from our neighborhood public schools. The public supports this fight. It is absurd for me to accept that a student would be forced to sit on the floor of their chemistry class as I was for an entire year or have to drop AP psychology because there were more students in the class than there were desks. Smaller class size will increase the student-to-teacher ratio. We were 48th in the country. More nurses and counselors will create a nurturing learning environment. Holding charter schools accountable will reduce the drain on public resources. And the community-centered schools will create strong bonds between schools and their surrounding neighborhoods. It has been my privilege to attend LAUSD public schools for the past 13 years. The great teachers I've had helped shape me into the person I am today. I will encourage, or when I graduate this year, I want to know that every child in Los Angeles has an even better opportunity than I had. Listen, our kids need people to talk to on campus. They need people to go to when there are things going on in their lives that won't allow them to function and concentrate in their classrooms. That's what we're here for. It's, if you think that all we do is limited to pencils and papers and, and curriculum, you're missing the whole point. We are here for the students and whatever they need. What, what the world is watching is a struggle over what these folks have talked about, which is something that is basic to human beings, which is education and being able to come to schools that actually work for the whole child, okay? Talk about the, the sort of values that came out of the building that you've done both on the ground here and nationally. From the get-go, when we were doing caucus work back in the 90s and then a lot of my work in the, the early 2000s was around this Coalition for Educational Justice, a, a driving value has been that work with parents and community has to be central to the work that we do as teachers, as community organizers, and as people trying to build a strong teachers' union. Um, so that's been a, a real fundamental thing. Yeah. A second real fundamental thing has been like the centrality of um, racial justice, particularly in a place like L.A., where between 85 and 90% of the kids are kids of color. A, a third real driving component has been that we've got to do real systematic organizing yeah. that that we, you know, just having a small group of people go in and negotiate contracts when others don't really know what's going on. Yeah. We can't, can't really have that. And the idea of doing it actually systematically right. and assessing where we are in terms of our reach within the members and what we're hearing from members and all that. Yeah. So those, I think, are, are, have been real fundamental things. The, the, I guess the two others I would add are leadership development being a huge component that, you know, particularly in a, in a profession that's dominated by women, making sure that we're intentionally seeking out opportunities for classroom teachers to develop their leadership in community organizing, um, union organizing, et cetera. And then the, the last one I would just throw out there is that we, we have always felt that we've got to build a union that isn't afraid to strike. Yeah. And, 
of course, the district right now in these very tense moments is mischaracterizing that yeah. as like that we've just been on a pell-mell drive towards wanting to strike. But we have been very clear for five years that, hey, we think in the labor movement, if you have to, you should be able to strike. Yeah. Um, so I think those are some of the have been some of the guiding things. What do you think people have missed in writing about this? I mean, I guess the caucus thing is often missed, that this stuff doesn't come out of nowhere. Yeah. It comes out of often like a couple of decades of like sort of quiet work. It's not like glorious meetings with, you know, <laughs> upper echelon people. It's like regular conversations with teachers yeah. and, you know, then this stuff all happens on a shoestring, right? Yeah. Like you're raising, <laughs> yeah. you're raising really? your own raising your own money to, to build a caucus. So I think that's missed. I think the other thing that is uh, is missed in just like a strike buildup yeah. organizationally is the care and intention that it takes to build systems and structures just within the union. Yeah. Like all the stuff that we're able to do right now when we have to do it. Yeah of like pushing information out to members, yeah. getting immediate responses from members about like how people are feeling, mm -hmm. pushing stuff out to parents, getting immediate feedback from parents. It's because of years of like setting down systems and structures. So I think those are two things that are yeah. pretty often missed. Yeah. The other thing that I yeah. think is, is missed is, um, and, and we don't, I mean, we're going to find out two weeks from now. Yeah how far we got on all this. Yeah. But this whole bargaining for the common good mm -hmm. piece yeah. uh, where we have attempted to inject what we know are non-mandatory subjects of bargaining right. into the process, yeah. whether it be stopping the so-called random searches of students, mm -hmm. you know, that are very racialized and, yeah. and disrupt instructional time, et cetera, whether it's uh, this idea of a charter cap Mm -hmm. Which we know we can't like negotiate with LAUSD, but it's a, we see it as fundamental to the future of public education in LA, and so have attached it as a policy question to the bargaining. Yeah. This idea of um, the district establishing an immigrant defense fund mm -hmm. for LAUSD families to be able to tap into if they're facing Trump yeah. stuff. So I think that's another thing that's that's missed. What's that meant sort of internally in terms of when you took power in the union, reallocating where union resources were going? So we campaigned in 2014 very specifically on, look, we need an organization that has an organizing director because UTLA forever didn't have an organizing director and department. Number two, we need an organization that has a political director and an actual political department. Third, we need a staffed-up parent community division. Fourth, we need an actual research department. UTLA's never had a research department. So we campaigned on all of this, and and people liked the idea. I mean, members were like, hey, that makes sense. So as soon as we came in, I mean, we were at a place where we our, our dues were, were extraordinarily low. Yeah. The affiliates, I mean, NEA, AFT, CFT, and CTA, to their to their credit and yeah. to our benefit, I mean, they helped us yeah. in, in that first year, basically, because we went to them as soon as we got elected and said, we're going to need your help yeah. hiring an organizing director, parent community organizers. They helped. 
it gave us an opportunity to to uh, take an all-member vote out to increase uh, dues. We were successful with that. The the members voted 82% to 18 to increase dues. So it's been pretty substantial in terms of like internal organizational shifts. We're running a special discount on memberships this month. Sign up now at bestoftheleft.com slash support to lock in that discount for as long as you keep your membership and enjoy ad-free versions of the show going forward. But until then... I was reading a piece by socialist feminist Tiffy Bhattacharya, who I hope to have on soon, and she had a piece on the strike where she wrote, quote, Struggles in the care or social reproduction sector are especially explosive today, as neoliberalism demands more hours of waged work per household and less support for social provisioning. It puts tremendous pressure on families and particularly on women in those families. Struggles over social reproduction and care have thus acquired renewed meaning in the neoliberal era. My question is, what does the fact that it is teachers, workers at the core of the social reproductive economy, who are leading, that it is them who are leading the strike wave, what does that tell us about the nature of contemporary capitalism and how to struggle against it? I think there are so many layers to that, right? So one of the things just the basic, basic function of teachers and why teachers have been beat up in the press for the last however long is that teachers have been women. Teachers have been women in this country since the beginning of public schools, largely because they were presumed to be cheap because women were supposed to be married to men who would do the real earning of a wage, right? Women are presumed to be naturally more caring and more dedicated to the well-being of children. And so, therefore, they would work for less money, they'd be cheap, and they'd be a nice docile workforce. I would like to introduce anybody who thought that to some of the L.A. teachers that I've met. But so that's kind of a, a number one bottom level thing that's happening here. And these teachers in particular, and we haven't talked that much about the demographics of this district. I've talked oh, yeah. more about the geography of yeah. it. But this is this is an overwhelmingly poor and non-white school district, right? So LA, everybody thinks of, you know, sort of actors and Hollywood and all of this money. And there's a ton of rich people here and there's a ton of rich white people here, but they, those are not the kids going to LA public schools. The kids who are going to LA public schools are something like 80% qualified for free and reduced price lunch. And as a quick aside, a lot of those people started, stopped sending their kids to public schools decades ago to resist integration. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Alex Caputo Pro will point out that the, you know, the defunding of public ed started at about the same time that the um, percentage of kids of color in public schools started going up. So now we're talking about a district that has, you know, the, the number one, the biggest proportion of non-white students are um, Central and South American. But that you've also got immigrant kids from all over the place. I'm talking to teachers who have five, six, seven, eight languages spoken at their school. One who, you know, the biggest... Um, proportion of immigrants speak Farsi. You know, it just depends on which part of town you're in. There are so many different, deep ethnic communities in LA. You mean the, the first category of Central and South American, uh, you meant to include Mexican in that? or? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. So we're talking about a district that is overwhelmingly low income, overwhelmingly, um, you know, tons of language learners and overwhelmingly non-white. That is who goes to these schools. 
Um, these are working class black and brown kids. We should really emphasize that every single time and the union does. And that is a big reason why it is just fine to attack them and shove them into classes with 50 students in them. Because, you know, these are the people we don't care about. This is, you know, where we talk about the school to prison pipeline and things like that. Um, we talk about deportation. We talk about all of that. That's who is being defunded. That's who people don't really care about. When, you know, the slogan that started in Chicago that we now hear everywhere, which is the teacher's working conditions are our students' learning conditions. A lot of people just straight don't care about the learning conditions of poor black and brown kids. And that's just a reality. And so when you start to strip back the public sector that serves those people first, this is what happened with welfare reform. If we're going to talk about, you know, things that started in California, Ronald Reagan and welfare reform. Um, you are able to attack welfare because welfare aid to families with dependent children was a program that was seen wrongly. By the way, it was always mostly white mm-hmm. women who used it, but it was seen as a program that was helping black women and their children. And so we have a long history of starting the gutting of the social welfare state with black and brown women and their kids. And that is what's happening here again. And so you look at that and you you have to, you know, I, I want to talk about, you know, like Compahee River Collective Statement, right? If we, if black women, their demands are met, if they are taken care of, then everybody else will be taken care of on all the way up. And that's one part of the puzzle. And a quick aside, the flip side of that is true. Looking at the history of the rise of mass incarceration, obviously, black people in particular have been the most spectacularly and excessively and disproportionately punished by the rise of mass incarceration. But that racist, spectacular punishment of black people has also legitimated a system of mass incarceration that also chews up plenty of white people. Exactly. Exactly. So there are plenty of kids who are not black and brown in these schools. Um, and the, you know, there are plenty of people who might be more likely to send their kids to public schools if they knew that their kid wouldn't be in a classroom full of 50 people, some of whom have to stand. The public sector gets hollowed out that way and then it screws over everybody. So we, we know this, right? We know this is how this works. We know that where the wedge of these things always comes in. We know how the, the charter schools, again, will come in and say, well, we want to make things better for these black and brown children who aren't being served well by these schools. But actually what they do is they have no programs for English language learners. They have no special ed programs. So all of the kids who need special education are pushed back into the public school where they don't have enough counselors and they don't have enough special ed teachers and they don't have enough regular teachers. Um, and then they declare the public schools to be a failure and thus in need of private sector competition. How convenient. Right. The vicious cycle of it is just ongoing. And so when we think about the sort of crisis of social reproduction that people talk about a lot these days, we should understand this in, I mean, A, right, it affects all of us, but these are the ways that the, the working class is divided broken up, turned against itself, and then systematically, you know, the the things that we would think of as like the social wage, right? The stuff that everybody gets as virtue of being in America. I don't want to say being an American because I'm talking about a lot of immigrant people here who do not and are not considered American, whatever, you know, is going on in this stupid country. Um, (laughs) Those things are going away. And they're going away because they were successfully painted as handouts to undeserving black and brown people rather than 
a social wage, a social benefit for everybody. And so the teachers have done a very, very good job in the last several years of turning that around and saying public education should be a public good. The school, though, should be something more than just a place that educates. It should be a place that cares. It should be a place where there's a nurse. It should be a place where there's a counselor. It should be a place where the parents can feel comfortable coming in. It should be a place that serves the entire community. And that is, again, I, I said this before, and I'm, I'm you know, saying it again, it's a, a demand for the revival of the entire idea of public space and public good. That is the biggest challenge out there that anybody is raising to the entire idea of sort of their, you know, there is no alternative. Margaret Thatcher, there is no such thing as society. That kind of argument, right? Margaret Thatcher famously said, there's no such thing as society. There are individual men and women and there are families. And the idea behind that, you just had Melinda Cooper on, is that individuals and families are just responsible for their own thing. That is the logic of charter schools. The logic of charter schools is I'm going to get my kid into a good school and my kid will do better. And I don't care about everybody else that gets left behind at their, you know, what would have been their community public school because I need my kid to do better. And that's like, that's logical, right? If you have a kid, I don't, but I know people who do. (laughs) If you have a kid, you want the best for your kid. You want your kid in the best school. I don't know any leftist in New York City who has a kid who wants their kid to just go to any crappy school. They are all trying to get their kid into the best school that school choice can get them, right? This is, it is logical. It's a systemic problem. Because, right. But the problem there is like, right, when everybody's just getting theirs and nobody said for, you know, decades and decades, we've got to fight for the entire thing. Then the entire thing is just getting worse and worse. And now, again, you've got 45, 50 kids in a classroom. And so this is when we get to the point where the teachers unions are saying, wait, 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 we've got to fight for it all. So education and schools and school districts and teachers unions, that's all an important part of this story. But if we take the lens back, I think something that you said at the very beginning, Natalia, was so interesting, which is the return of the strike. And in many ways, the return of unions. I mean, one of the stories that we tell in sort of the big labor history picture of the 20th century is that union membership peaks in like 1955, and then is in steady decline and then dramatic decline by the 1970s. But when you look at public unions, public service unions or public employee unions, it's a very different picture. It goes from 400,000 members in 1955. And then by the 70s, you have 4 million members. And part of that is down to changes in the law. In um, During his administration, John Kennedy allows for there to be unionizing in by public sector employees. And so that opens the floodgates to this kind of public sector union. But that ultimately changes the face of unionism in America. It's much more women-led um, and it's much more centrally located now, especially the private employee unions have largely disappeared in some ways, um, that public sector unions are really the, the driver of unionism in the United States. And I think these teachers unions and the strikes that they've had show that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, that historical arc that you're sketching there, Nikki, is really important here. One of the things that's 
has really struck me in both the um, L.A. teacher strike, but also in some of the other ones that have happened recently in Oklahoma and Arizona, is there seems to be a much larger public support for these strikes than I would have assumed, given mm-hmm. that history you've sketched out um, and the real decline of the labor movement um, across the late 20th century and early 21st century, but particularly, I think, the special politics of uh, children's education in American society mm-hmm. and the ways in which people have certainly, I think many Americans have but different interests in the educational system than they do in, say, the manufacturing sec- sector of the economy. And so the solid base of support for the, the strikes that I've seen has actually been a surprise to me. The one that I think makes sense in a Trump moment, and I wonder if that's a critical factor here um, that's shaping the, the politics or the kind of public response to these strikes. So I think that it's wider than that in a way. I mean, there's been, especially since 2010, such a broad-based attack on unionism in the United States. And that has triggered a really wide-ranging discussion about why unions are so important and so necessary. And I think that's actually built up some public support for unions more generally. I don't know, Natalia, what do you think about the specifics of it? Um, well, yeah, I, I agree with both of you to be kind of, you know, middle of the road about <laughs> it. Um, but I also think Neil is onto something and that, you know, one of the big attacks on teachers unions has positioned teachers, um, unionized teachers as kind of lazy parasites who are just looking mm-hmm. to get as much time off as possible and to not work and they get out at 3 p.m. and they're just living off the fat of the public coffers to mix metaphors. Um, <laughs> but if you look at the demand, at the expense of children, right? Exactly at the expense of children, right? All they care about is their vacation days, etc. If you look at the demands that were in play in the LA negotiations, and I haven't seen the official documents, but these are the ones being reported on, except for a request for a salary raise, everything else was unquestionably about in- improving the student mm-hmm. experience. This was about getting nurses in schools where there's no full-time nurse, getting uh, librarians in schools, cutting class size down from like an atrocious 42 kids in a high school class to like 39. So all of those, those are not like more vacation days, more coffee breaks. They're not even like asking for, um, you know, more professional development opportunities, which could be construed in a, you know, deep deeply anti-teacher society, I would say, as sort of selfish. These are all very much about kids' experiences. And so to that point, I think, Neil, it's an easier sell in the public image to have this pull at the heartstrings of people of a society, which at least pretends to care about children's education. I contrast that if any of you have not seen the movie The Lottery, which came out probably now like a decade ago, which is a very, it's like Mm -hmm. pro-charter school propaganda about the success charter network, which is definitely the biggest one in New York City. It definitely has national standing too. Eva Moskowitz is the head of it. And it is like an anti-union propaganda movie. So you should check that out and maybe contrast it with what it sounds like all of us are describing as some rising sympathies towards teachers unions today. So we probably need to move on now. But I I didn't want to end this without also adding the context with your initial comments about 2009 being a low point. I mean, we're talking about right in the middle of the Great Recession when there simply was no leverage for workers to push back for anything because unemployment was so high and they just had no positionality. And now that the economy has in some ways 
recovered, jobless rates are down below 4%, there is a real leverage on the side of workers. And there is the reality that while companies have made so much money in the intervening decade, there hasn't been a commensurate rise in wages. Mm. And that disconnect has not only provided the leverage, but really the the justification for coming out and pushing back against employers in order to compensate workers more fairly. So I think that that is part of a, a broader shift economically that's empowering unions. The settlement includes higher pay, but also smaller class size, more support staff, more nurses, librarians, and counselors, also more regulation of charter schools, less standardized testing, more green space, more funding from the state, way beyond the usual agreement on pay and benefits. The L.A. school district is the largest employer in the city, so when their workers go on strike, it's a very big deal for the students and their families, of course, for the teachers, of course, but also for the whole city and really for the Democratic Party everywhere in the United States. You were out on the picket lines here last week in L.A. talking to teachers and parents. What did they say the strike was about? I think for teachers and for parents in Los Angeles, the strike was about, you know, it's become almost a a cliche to say the schools our students deserve, thanks to the Chicago teachers making that such a a regular slogan. But it's true. When you talk to parents who are saying, my kid goes to school and there's 40 students in his class, and how is he supposed to get any attention from his teacher when there's 40 students in this class? When I'm talking to students who are getting organized because they're being stopped and frisked in the schools. When you're talking to teachers who have seen their funding cut back, they have a nurse once a week. I talked to a librarian who for a little while had to travel to a different school basically every day of the week because the schools only had a librarian one day a week. When you talk to people about things like this, you get a real picture of what's been done to public education and what this union would like to reverse. And this is a battle not just for better schools in Los Angeles, it's also a battle over the future of the Democratic Party. This whole strike had, you know, it had nothing to do with the Republicans or with Trump. It's really about whether the Democrats, who of course have complete control in Los Angeles and California, will support austerity and the steady erosion of public services, or whether the Democrats will support a more progressive and better funded government. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about that for a minute. Yeah, it was very interesting to me that uh, Cory Booker, who never met a charter school or a hedge fund that he didn't like, was at a charter school event in New Orleans while the Los Angeles teachers were on strike. Yeah, And this comes after a week where like, the Democratic Party actually, the DNC put out a statement on the first day of the strike saying they stand with teachers. Kamala Harris put out um, some videos saying she supported the teachers. Bernie Sanders, it's no surprise, sent out an email to his email list saying support the teachers. So there is a movement in that direction, but there are still the Cory Bookers of this world. And, you know, it's important to note that the Los Angeles school board who hired this Wall Streeter, Austin Butner, to run the school district, they are all theoretically Democrats. And so when you look at this and when you look at California in particular, right, your state is the biggest economy in the U.S., the fifth biggest economy in the world if it was its own country, and it is 43rd in per student funding. That's not an 
accident. It's not a something that just sort of, oops, it happened. These are conscious decisions that were made to defund the schools. It goes back in part to Prop 13, but it also, it's a decision that's been made over and over again in these cities that are run by Democrats. This fits into a much broader history, as you saw in the night cold open, of the Chicago's teacher strike in 2012. And I think we need to actually put that in the continuum of a resurgent left in modern U.S. politics. There's the Occupy movement, essential, incredibly important, Black Lives Matter, the campaign of Bernie Sanders, and I would also add the Chicago teacher strike. They were resisting the, of course, particularly obscene authoritarian and anti-people leadership of Chicago mayor and former Obama chief of staff and NAFTA point man, Rahm Emanuel. And they were resisting, though, some of the same things that you're seeing resisted in Los Angeles, which has to do with prioritizing charter schools and private education. Superintendent Boitner of Russia shock doctrine fame, has called this charter school demands a distracting, quote unquote, shiny ball in response to what the union president, Alex Caputo, called, said, we know that there's going to be a compromise at the end of the day, but the big ticket items like class size, staffing, and limited standardized testing are pretty foundational along with charter school accountability, without a doubt. Our current education secretary, Betsy DeVos, backed by the Mercers, Waltons, and Koch brothers and other malefactors of the country, have supported charter schools, has supported charter schools across the country. Charter schools are disasters for low-income students who see money and investment funneled away from public schools to charter schools and suffer the consequences. Additionally, charter schools and similar programs have sought to find ways to move money out of public schools and into religious schools. In Florida, tax credit credit schemes try to sub, uh, subvert a ban on public financing of religious schools by funneling money as a tax-free write-off through nonprofits to be used for religious schools. In the 2012 protest uh, strikes, which we mentioned before, the first wave was a fight between the teachers and the pro-business forces supported by both Democrats and Republicans. Rahm Emanuel began laying the groundwork to increase the privatization of public education along with teacher layoffs and was supported in this effort by billionaires Bill Gates, the Walton family, and Eli Broad. The Chicago teachers went on strike for similar demands as I've said before, this battle is ongoing, bipartisan, and, Im- and implicates many frontline Democrats. Public education has been under assault for decades, and democracy in chains, this is one of the areas that Nancy McLean points out as a sort of key resistance point of the American oligarchy to an emergent and broadened American democracy. And of course, if you're on the left, you would criticize stagnant models of education and authoritarian teaching and control and coercion of students. And indeed in the seventies, there were radical, more sort of anarchist style uh, writers like Ivan Illich who 
critiqued schools as bureaucracies and called for greater radicalism. Paulo Freire in Brazil wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed and said that schools, instead of being sort of factories to churn people out as economic performers, needed to equip the poor to overturn the structures of their oppression, essentially, and to own their economies. So the stakes are big across all parts of this debate. But it has been the case that starting with the far right and bleeding through the corporate consensus uh, and into the elites of the Democratic Party, that the very notion of public education has been under assault. And charter schools have been a major sort of battering ram of this fight. They have emerged as a distinctly liberal, neoliberal way of dealing with the crisis. Let's save a few students while we undercut the totality of the quality. In many cases, also charter schools have been exposed for lying about performance, distorting test results, and underserving students who need the most help. President Obama was a, tr- a supporter of charter schools, saying only only our children only get one chance at education, and charter schools demonstrate what is possible when states, communities, teachers, parents, and students work together. Of course, States, students, teachers, and communities working together is literally the point of public education, not private profit-seeking narrow interests undermining the collective enterprise. Charter schools have just been a way to privatize public money and take it away from public education. And let's get really specific about this. Hedge funds and banks have invested in charter schools and enjoy significant tax credits. Even more bizarrely, foreign investors who donate a maximum of $500 into charter schools have been allowed to buy immigration visas for themselves or their family members under EBF5 program. The real estate industry also benefits from renting or selling to the public charter schools. Much of the rhetoric around charter schools is anti-labor and essentially blames teachers. That's right. Teachers, people making maybe $60,000 a year or less to educate classrooms full of children in dilapidated schools and under-sourced uh, resources, it's their fault that kids are underperforming. Not structural inequality, not lack of investment, not oligarchy. Teachers. Charter schools have also had a disproportionately negative effect on people and students of color. The working class demand for public education is elemental to the radical democratic and socialist project from the beginning. Working people understood the importance of a public education system, which is why the defense and expansion of public schools were a central demand of the American working class movement. Here's a call from the Philadelphia Working Man's Association in the 19th century requesting the realization of public education for all classes. The original element of nepotism is a monopoly of talent, which consigns the multitude to comparative ignorance and secures the balance of knowledge on the side of the rich and the rulers. The means of equal knowledge, the only security for equal liberty, should be rendered by legal obligation the common property of all classes. The right to an education is a fight over the means to have a prosperous life of regardless of where you come from and to, and engage in a democracy across all sectors of society. Public education is an important victory for democracy and the working class. And this is why it's been threatened by the ruling class from racial segregation schemes to denying the funding to the ruling class is always on the offensive to roll back this important gain and value. But we cannot be satisfied with just defeating the onslaught of the rich. We need a principled and bold stand for fighting for the realization and promise of free, exceptional and exceptional public education for all. 
Thanks for listening to another throwback episode plucked from the archives to give you context for today. For more like this, check the feed as this is a weekly feature of the show that's in addition to all of our new episodes. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail or text at 202-999-3991 or email me to j at bestofleft.com. These episodes are remastered and produced by Dion Clark, Aaron Clayton, and myself. We also produce funny and informative bonus episodes along with Amanda Hoffman as thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships to the show. If you get value out of the show, we'd appreciate your support at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, with new episodes coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.